If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them to Genesis chapter 40, and we will be looking at the entire chapter of Genesis 40. If you are new to the Bible, or it's been a long time since you have really looked at one, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and those large numbers are the chapter divisions, those small numbers are the verse divisions, and that will help you follow along as we read and study God's word this morning. But before we do so, would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time together under his word. Father, your word tells us that your works are great, and we see them evident not only all around us, but here recorded in your word. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Lord, we pray that you will give us hearts that delight, that delight in the good things that we are about to read. We pray that you will open our hearts to receive the things that you have put down here for our benefit, that we may know you, we may know how we ought to live in light of your incredible power, in light of your incredible grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week I opened with what I think was my most unpopular illustration ever by denigrating baseball. And uh, that earned me quite a lot of rebuke over this past week. But I just want to let everyone know that I am not recanting that at all. Um, We'll move in a different direction this morning. I'm sure many of you have been to hospitals, perhaps even the, the emergency room. I know growing up, there was a period of time from like seventh grade till when I was a junior in college that I found myself going to the hospital a lot, oftentimes to the emergency room. I, there, were, there was one point where I was going so frequently, uh, not to visit, but to be a patient, that, uh, but I was going so frequently that the, uh, the nurses and the staff began to recognize me and call me by name and welcome me when I entered in. That is never a situation you want to be in. Um, But such is life when you are young and foolish and uh, think that you can just do whatever. You know, the wait time in hospital emergency rooms is never pleasant. Generally, you're in agony, you're in in pain. And yet, you're waiting there for hours and hours. And then every now and then you see someone who comes in and, and they, because they're their problem is worse than yours. They get to go right in, you know. Meanwhile, you, you know what that means. That means you're waiting even longer. I was looking this week to find out what the average wait time for hospitals in our area was. And, and they were typically, many of them, this was Thursday morning. All right, so at that time, Thursday morning, average wait time was about five hours. Between five and six hours. That's Thursday morning. You go later in the evenings and, and you're going to up that by two or three hours. At Thursday morning when I checked, there was 
several hospitals that were well over seven hours. There was one hospital that was almost at 11 hours wait time if you needed to go to the emergency room. Imagine being in pain. You're, you're at the emergency room for a reason. It's, it's an emergency. We'll be with you in 10 hours or so. We'll be with you tomorrow. And that whole time you're suffering, that whole time you're waiting. Or if you're a parent, that whole time you're trying to console a child or or someone who is in pain. Many of us know what that is like from firsthand experience, but whether we know it from the emergency room or not, the reality is all of us know what it is like to wait To wait in uncertainty. To wait with no answer and no no certainty about when relief will come. Whether that be relief from physical pain. Or whether that is relief from emotional distress. Perhaps we will be... Suffer, we will suffer some setback, some job loss, some physical ailment. Perhaps our life will fragment and break. Some of us have experienced the waiting room of suffering in our marriages, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our parents, those we love. We, we endure, we care, we do all that we can But the answer is not in us. It is ours to wait and wait only. And the question that we ask at those times, if we can see our mind through, is what are we holding on to? And Joseph points the way. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. He has a younger brother who's considerably younger than him, Benjamin. And Joseph, by chapter 40, those opening words there in chapter 40, it came to pass after these things. After these things, you remember that Joseph, at the age of 17, was sold into slavery, taken down into Egypt. He is in a foreign country with a foreign people in a foreign culture, now a slave, and he, he, yet he honors and he hopes in God. He works And God blesses him. God is with him. And Joseph rises in the household. And then he is wrongfully accused, unjustly condemned and imprisoned. And even there, we find at the end of chapter 39 that Joseph is yet hoping in God. The Lord is with him. The Lord is blessing him. So that now Joseph is a leader. As a prisoner, he is a leader within the prison. So that the warden doesn't really know what's going on anymore. He's left it entirely in Joseph's hand because Joseph has shown himself not only to be a responsible person, but one with whom the Lord is present. One who has the Lord's favor. And by the start of chapter 40, Joseph has been in the land of Egypt for more than 10 years. We're not sure what the breakdown is, how long he was a slave, how long he was a prisoner. We don't know. 
If we account six or seven years as a slave, then that leaves us with three plus years as a prisoner up to this point. We, we don't know how long he is a prisoner before chapter 40 comes. But he will be a prisoner for at least two more years left by the end of this chapter. What we find in this chapter is that it is the Lord who writes our stories. He is the one in whose hand rests the pen that writes the story and the narrative of our lives. There is a belief out there that God is totally stepped back. He, he has no, he has chosen not to have any control over anything that happens here. We, by our own ability, are able to write our own story, doing whatever it is we want. And we can, contrary, that is, we can act against him. And to safeguard our freedom, absolute freedom, God this, this idea goes, God does not even know the future. Because if God knew what we would do tomorrow, then our decisions tomorrow are set. And therefore, we don't have genuine freedom. So the only reason God can ever tell us what happens years from now is not because he knows or that he has ordained it, but that he has simply guessed what it will be. This idea goes by the name of open theism, and it is wrong on so many levels. What becomes clear in this passage is that God is, even in the darkness of this prison, God is at work. The life of Joseph is in the hand of God. And Joseph is going to see it show up in important ways, and you and I will as well. So start with me here in verse 1, and we will read to verse 4, and we are introduced to these two characters. The New King James translates them, the, the baker and the butler. Other translations will have that butler more accurately uh, ideas. That he is the cupbearer. But the baker and the butler, follow along as I read. It came to pass after these things that the the, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was very angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them so that they were in custody for a while. So we find that here, the baker and the butler, they are with Joseph in prison, put in prison. And what we find is that there are hints, even here, of God's sovereignty at work. Despite the fact that we don't know what the baker and the butler did, we're not given any information about that. The baker and the butler, the baker and the cupbearer, these are not just two servants in the king's house. These aren't like um, mere servants that would be respected or, or loved. These were important officials in Egypt. It would be like the uh, state officials today in, in, in the cabinet of the president. 
These individuals are those who have important influence. They are the ones who have uh, Pharaoh's ear when it comes to important matters. The baker doesn't just see to the meals. He is a counselor. He is a friend to the king. Same with the cup bearer. He not only tastes the cup, it appears that he, he may also have some kind of role in, in choosing the selection of the drinks that Pharaoh himself will partake of. But more than all this, these are individuals who are close to the king of Egypt, close to Pharaoh. And not only servants, they are important state officials. We are not sure what they do to offend the prison, to, to offend Pharaoh. But they are subjected to this, to this prison. And we, we, we need to understand prisons in this time period, they were not the place where condemned people went and spent their days or years. People were not sentenced to prison for a certain amount of time and then, and then released. Prisons were dark, dank, difficult, disease-ridden That's four D's, right? If you got that, four D's. Disease-ridden places. They were holding places for, for one of two reasons or for one of two pathways came out of them. You were either freed and exonerated or you were killed and executed. Those are the two ways prisons operated. Those are the two pathways, sorry, that people had out of prison. Prisons were no laughing matter. These are not white-collar, minimum security prisons with TVs and good meals. Very little was given to these individuals. And yet, you'll find, you notice who the one is that assigns them to Joseph's care. Pharaoh finds something at fault with the baker and the butler, and he gives them to the captain of the guard. Hey, Take these guys to prison. Get them out of my sight. I'm tired of them. I don't know what's going on, but send them to prison until I figure out what I'm going to do with them. And the captain of the guard takes them, and rather than giving them to the warden, who then gives them to Pharaoh, I'm sorry, then gives them to Joseph, it is the captain of the guard, we read in verse 4, who charges them under Joseph's care. The reason this is important, because we find in the very previous chapter that the captain of the guard is none other than Potiphar himself. We don't know whether this means that Potiphar doubted whether Joseph had really slept with his wife like his wife claimed. We're not really certain what this means, but what it does make clear is that on Potiphar's side, he sees that the Lord is still with Joseph and he's honoring him. But, but more than all of this, what we find is that God is guiding and directing everything. God has brought these two state officials and put them into the very same prison that Joseph is in. And not only put them into the same prison, but he has had them charged by the same individual that charged Joseph. He has had them charged under Joseph's care. And Joseph does indeed care for them. God is clearly working behind the scenes. 
providentially guiding, providentially ruling of all the people who would find themselves in this position, the baker and the butler and all that the details are going to happen. Clearly, God is guiding. He is the one who is directing. This is the providential rule of God. There is an old Christian catechism and it asks this question, what do you understand by God's providence? And it answers in this way. The providence of God is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I imagine if the writers of that catechism were today, they might slip in a few lines about whether the gas prices are high or low. All things, all things are under the providential rule of God. It is the Lord who guides and has these men committed to this prison under, under this charge by, by this captain of the guard whom Joseph was sold to. And then this captain of the guard puts them and charges them under Joseph's care. And it's clear that God is here working behind the scenes. We move on. We see that this chapter, the heart of this chapter, deals with dreams and nightmares. Verse 5, Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt were confined in the prison. They had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretations. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in the custody of his lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. It was an ancient Egyptian superstition that all dreams, particularly ones that uh, would have stood out to the one who had them, but that dreams were the vehicle for information, of revelation from the gods. We have already seen how God has revealed himself to Joseph in just such a way. Clearly here, God is the one who is the dream giver. He is the one who is revealing himself. Joseph is the one who tells us that. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell your dreams to me and I will give you that interpretation. Joseph is is not just interested in giving them some random ideas about what maybe their dreams mean. He admits from the very get-go, all true and genuine revelation comes from God. Not from the universe, not from our own gut feelings, but from God. And Joseph is bold here declaring this. He, he could have simply remained silent about that. 
Oh, tell me your, tell me your dreams. Tell, tell me to me, and I will interpret them for you. But that's not what he says. He gives all the credit to God, doesn't he? Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams, and Joseph gives God all the glory. And brothers and sisters, this is how we must operate as well. Whatever gifts we have been given, whatever abilities we have been blessed with, whatever accomplishments we might have achieved in our lives, who gets the credit for those? Whether it is serving one another here at church, whether maybe that it be cleaning, teaching, leading in music, accompanying music. Perhaps you have particular gifts of wisdom or leadership. Things that you can do at work. Some of you have particular skills that make you valuable to your workplace. Where do those skills come from? Kids and teens, where, where do you get the ability to do, to do your schoolwork and to do it well? Who gave you your skill at sports, your, your friendliness, your clothing, your looks, everything you have? I mean, is there anything about us that we can take ultimate credit for? Some of us adults have eyes for colors, design, able to make things beautiful, aesthetically pleasing. Some of us are able to take things that are broken and fix them, whether that be a car, whether that be a system, whether that be a situation. We, we can deal with problems and, and solve it in a variety of ways. All of this comes from the Lord. And every now and then, we as Christians are delighted when we see some coach or some person of influence who, when they are asked a question by the media about what they credit in their life for their success. We are delighted when they give an answer and they say, I give all the glory to God for what he has done. He has done this in my life. He has changed me. He has operated this way. And if, if we're seeing that as genuine Bible-believing Christians, doesn't that just give us joy? And yet, how often do we fail to do that very same thing when we are given such opportunities. On a smaller scale, yes, but how often are we willing to take the credit for something without ever praising God for it? Brothers and sisters, let us give God glory for all the work that he has given us to do. Unfortunately, the chapter doesn't end with that invitation. They, these men do indeed give the dreams to, to Joseph. Read with me from verses 9 to 11. We see the, the butler's dream. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and clusters of grapes brought, uh, clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. 
three grapes, sorry, three, three vines. And Joseph gives this interpretation in verses 12 to 13. This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. This is good news. There is going to be three days, hence the, the three branches. These three days will pass, and at the end of those three days, the butler is going to be restored to his former position. And you can imagine, if you're the butler, how happy you are. And you can imagine, if you're the baker, seeing that there's a good interpretation for the butler, that your response is, huh, it's safe to share my dream as well. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 19, the dream and the interpretation. When the chief butler, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets in my head and the uppermost basket was all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. Not exactly the interpretation he is hoping for. But I want us to see, no matter how disappointing that baker is going to be, and certainly any of us in his position would be, I want us to see in verses 20 to 22 that what God reveals is true. That God, when he reveals something, it is true. Verse 20, now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he, that is Pharaoh, he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to him. Joseph gives these interpretations. And these interpretations would have appeared incredibly unlikely. And yet everything God says is absolutely true. It is truth with a capital T. Everything we read in God's word is true. No caveats, no exceptions, no parentheses, no footnote needed. Everything God says is true. In fact, so true is God's word that multiple times throughout God's word, you will have the Bible described with the word, as the word of truth. In Psalm 119, 151, we read that all your commandments are true. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And even Christ Jesus himself leads us to believe and see in John 17, 17, that God speaks true when he declares to the when he declares to the father in his prayer your word is truth 
Friends, there are a lot of people that call themselves Christians. Many of them lead churches, have YouTube channels. They will have large online followings. They will write books, but they regularly undermine this idea that God speaks truth. My friends, I want to ask you, in in what way can we call ourselves followers of Jesus if we disagree with Jesus about the most fundamental reality? That God's word is true. And true in all of its parts. All that God says is true. He, He never lies. April 1st, 1996, Taco Bell was trying to devise a, a, an advertising marketing strategy that would pique the interest. And so they sunk $300,000, which is not a very great amount, but they sunk $300,000 into a marketing campaign that said that they were buying, they had bought, Taco Bell had bought the, uh, the Liberty Bell. And they were doing it so as to help the country decrease its national debt. And they were going to rename the Liberty Bell there in Philadelphia, where it was going to stay. They were going to rename it the Taco Bell Liberty Bell. It was on April 1st. It was a fool's day joke. Many of you may remember it. Not that long ago. Of course, at the time, people weren't sure that it was an April Fool's joke. People started panicking. Those who worked at the National Park Service began to panic that that the National Parks had sold such a significant historical monument to, of all places, to Taco Bell. They were worried that their new employer wasn't the National Parks. It was really Taco Bell. People all across the country began to talk about it. It, The the news, which wasn't true, began to make its way uh, beyond the newspapers and it began to make its way into the talk shows. Making Good Morning America and all sorts. It reached more than 70 million people. And it has gone down as one of the most successful marketing strategies in U.S. history. In terms of how much was spent and how many eyeballs paid attention. In the weeks that followed it, there was a significant, massive uptick in Taco Bell sales. You know, they sold themselves as a joke with something that wasn't true. But it was something that everybody was supposed to know. It's April Fool's. We we all joke on April Fool's. There are pranks. There are lies. And this is merely the way it is. Here's an April Fool's joke that everyone didn't realize was an April Fool's joke. But the Lord will never and never does anything like that. He is not interested in giving us clickbait. He is not interested in trying to draw our our eyeballs with something that's shocking but isn't ultimately grounded in reality. 
Everything God says is true. And the baker and the butler and Joseph saw that writ large. The other thing we need to realize is that everything God says, not only is it true, it is right. Every word of God is right. It's one thing we know very well in our world. It's one thing for things to be true. It's another thing for them to be right. There are a lot of things that are true that happen, but that are not right. There's a lot of things that people say that might be true, but but aren't right. Psalm 119.72, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Or one of my favorite passages in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is clean, enduring forever. The, The rules of the Lord, they are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even even much fine gold. Sweeter. Even than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Everything God says is true and right. And Joseph, by delivering God's word truly, he is the example of what a prophet will look like. He delivers God's word. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't change it. He declares it as God's word. He doesn't soften the blow for the baker. He doesn't tell him something that's not true merely to help him feel better. He did not get embarrassed about what God's word is. He did not mumble or stay silent. His role was to declare and he did. He doesn't tell it like he sees it. He tells it as God said it. And therein lies the huge difference. He doesn't judge God's word. He doesn't evaluate it. He doesn't try to change its packaging to make it more culturally relevant. He just declared it. This is what what God has said. And in this he pictures Christ Jesus who is himself the great and perfect prophet, who not only declares God's word, he is God's word. He not only speaks the truth of God, he is the truth of God. He is, as we sang earlier, he reveals God perfectly, reveals his justice as he hangs on a tree. And he reveals God's mercy and grace for sinners. There on the cross, Christ displays and reveals the heart and the character of God in ways that were before unfathomable in the world. And Joseph is just a, a faint shadow 
offering up a faint shadow of a picture of what Christ is. And brother and sister, we are to receive God's word because it is true, because it is right, and because it comes from God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul commends the believers there because when they because when he preached to them, they received that word, not as the commandments of men, but as the commandments from God. And this is exactly what pastors and you who teach Sunday school or Bible clubs, this is what you do. We are to rightly handle the word of truth, neither adding nor taking anything away. Or as Paul will say in Acts 20, Verse 27, we are to declare the whole counsel of God. And this is what every gospel, genuine gospel preacher will do. It is our aim to declare the whole counsel of God. But do you know what will stop this? What will put an end to that at this church? It is you. If, if we as a church no longer and become increasingly embarrassed by what God says here, if we will become increasingly inattentive to it, if we will show the next generation that the, the things in God's word, they're not relevant, they're not essential for you, going to gather and to study God's word is not that important for you, We will set up the next generation to abandon God completely. And we will join the ranks of those churches that either close their doors or abandon God's word in an attempt to become more tractional, more relevant, less faithful. So I've got to ask, are you becoming embarrassed by what God's word says? Hopefully, in the way that I preach, I am not giving you a reason to be embarrassed. Not being self-righteous or arrogant or unfeeling. I cannot help it if you are embarrassed about the fact that I am the one declaring it. Someone who is so clearly out of touch with the world, that's just not going to change I am as unhip as it gets. I am as irrelevant as it gets. I, uh, my wife brought me a t- bought me a T-shirt a couple of Christmases ago. It says, uh, it's a quote from Erasmus that says, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if I have anything afterwards, then I buy, fi- I buy food and clothing. That's pretty much my life. The question is, are we embarrassed by what God's word says? What what is it, brothers and sisters, that you are finding yourselves slowly becoming embarrassed to talk about? What are you afraid that I am going to say that might prevent you from inviting someone? What are you embarrassed to say to your friend? And if we are embarrassed by what God says and how it might offend someone else, doesn't that reveal where our real problem is? 
Because if God's word is true and good and right, and yet we're the ones who are increasingly embarrassed by it, then the problem isn't at this church. The problem isn't, and it can't be God's word. The problem must be us. Let me encourage you. Like Joseph, no matter how embarrassing or difficult it might be to believe and to confess what God says and to declare it, know that it is good and that it is right. Yet by the end of this chapter, despite all of these things, we find that Joseph is again left in the waiting room. Verses 14 and 15, we had skipped over them earlier. But Joseph, after giving the interpretation to the butler that he is going to be restored to his previous position, he says, but remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. And yet what we find in verse 23, the very end of the chapter, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 41, then it came to pass at the end of two full years. So by this point, it has been 11 years that Joseph has been in prison. And it's going to be two more till Pharaoh remembers him, or till, till the butler remembers him toward Pharaoh. So for the next two years, despite this opportunity, Joseph is once again left alone in the waiting room, left uncertain. Like so many of us, Joseph doesn't know when his suffering will end. But something has changed. You know, for more than 10 years, the thing that has supplied Joseph with strength, the thing that Joseph has been resting his hat on, so to speak, has been God's word to him in those dreams when he was young. And for the last decade plus, while he has been both a slave and now in prison, he has been anchoring his hope for the future in that promise of God that one day he would so rule or reign that his family would bow down to him. He was convinced of that. And now, though he has two more years left, now Joseph has once again seen experiences or circumstances much like himself, much like what he experienced. Two men have two dreams. Joseph interprets them. And within days, he sees that these dreams are, are rightly interpreted, which gives him all the more confidence to remain faithful to the Lord. What a mercy on, what a mercy of God on Joseph to send him this encouragement to trust him for the last two years. 
despite the fact that God is still, for his own reasons, according to his own designs, still causing Joseph to wait. He is, as Psalm 105 tells us, the Lord is testing him. Because the Lord is more interested in in Joseph growing in Joseph's holiness, in Joseph's faith in him, God is far more interested in purifying and perfecting Joseph than he is in Joseph's comfort and security. And I would ask, brothers and sisters, have the promises of God toward us been altered or mitigated in any way? Has the word of God been weakened? Has it become corrupted so that we dare not rely on it too much? Has the providential rule of God waned so that you do not rest in him any longer? So that when he calls us to go sit in the waiting room, can we trust him there? You may say, I have waited so long I have waited for a spouse. I have waited for a kid. I have waited for this interruption, this frustration, this pain in my marriage to be relieved. I have waited for healing. I have waited for my, for my parent to recover, for my child to return and do what's right. I've waited for my suffering to end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, we are rarely given understanding as to the ways of God in our lives. But in his word, we are assured of his character. We are called to follow his commands and to anchor ourselves in his promises. So that no matter what may come, no matter how long we are called to suffer in life's waiting room, we may trust the one who has called us to be there. Trust him because he has bought us at the cost of his own son. And as Romans 8.32 tells us, if he has given us his own son, will he not also freely give us with him all things? I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. We cannot always trace God's hand but we can always trace God's heart. We may not know what God is doing in our lives, but there is is no time in which we can doubt God's good intentions, God's good purposes and plans for us. So brothers, sisters in Christ, look to him. Look to him. Lean not on your own understanding. Do not try to solve the uncertainty of your life with your own power, with your own plans. Rest where God has you. Cling to the promises of God. And trust 
that he who gave his own son to redeem you from your own sin will not at any moment let you slip and fall from his tender hand. He has bought you. Trust and rest in him. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that we too often have failed to trust. We have allowed our eyes to be drawn away by the things, by the problems that we have faced. Like like Peter walking on the waves toward Christ, took his eyes off of Jesus, put them on the, the waves as they swelled beneath his feet. And he began to sink. Oh, Father, we are, we are that way far, far too often. Give us eyes today to rest in your providential power to sustain us through all uncertainty. Let us be assured of your promises, O oh God. And to be like Joseph convinced of your word, so convinced that we are upheld through life and so convinced that we are unembarrassed to give it to others. Oh God, do this in us. We pray according to the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. Amen.